it's kind of considered the first film that accurately portrays what the GDR was actually like. Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. We have, we've had some new listeners and viewers recently, so uh, we figured we'd do something which we rarely did, or which I think we used to do, but then fell out of the habit, and that's actually introducing ourselves. We refer to each other sporadically during our conversations, but I am Harrison. I'm Elon. And I'm Adam. And with that out of the way, today we are going to be discussing a movie, but not just a movie. The movie will be kind of a launching point, launching pad for uh, a wider discussion. Last night we watched uh, The Lives of Others, a German movie by, oh, what's his name? Um, Florian Henkel von Donnersmark. It was his first movie. He wrote and directed it. And it was. it is about a playwright, an East German playwright. It takes place in 1984 into 1985. And then briefly at the end of the movie, the, the years after the fall of the wall and um, the few years after, um, after that event. And we'll give a basic overview of what happens in the movie so that those of you who haven't seen it have some idea. Um, there will be frequent spoilers because the movie's like 15 years old or something like that. So uh, you've had time to watch it. And uh, the movie's good whether or not you... Whether or not it's spoiled for you, um, I recommend it. I saw it years ago, um, probably soon after it came out, and this was the first time rewatching it since then. And I think it's a great movie. Um, we'll we'll have some things to say about uh, its positives and negatives, though. Even though I don't think the movie itself has very many negatives, if any. But first, maybe we'll give a brief overview. So the movie is about. I'm going to get my notes here for the names. I mentioned the playwright, uh, Georg Draymond. So he plays a, a playwright who's in the good books with the GDR government. So he doesn't write subversive plays, doesn't have, like, he's, he's friends with ministers, friends with people in high places, um, has won awards and things like that. He writes uplifting plays, um, showing the the... The, the socialist, humanistic spirit of the working class, I guess you could put it that way. And he has he's in a relationship with, uh, with his lead actress, um, Krista Maria Sealand. <clears throat> I'll just get this out of the way. This isn't based on real events. Um, maybe, yeah, before I get into some more of the plot, I'll just give a very brief rundown. Um, Florian, the director, von Donnersmark, he researched for about a year and a half before writing the film, so he read in the archives of the Stasi. Um, he talked to ex-Stasi men, officers, and victims of the Stasi. After a year and a half, he started writing. Um, you know, when he thought that he knew enough that he when he when he knew enough to to write, when he knew um, everything he needed to know, he started writing the the uh, the screenplay. And then wrote for another year and a half and then made the film. So it took about probably three to four years before actually starting to produce the film. And in the in the movie, as I mentioned, Georg is 
he's not an enemy of the state, you know, he's not a subversive, he's not a dissident. But at the opening of his new play in like November, December 1984, the Minister of Culture is in the audience and two Stasi agents go along. Well, one is, I I believe he's like the department head of the Stasi. And one of the just uh, Stasi agents, um, the main one of the main characters, uh, Gerd Weasler, Hauptmann Gerd Weasler, and they watch the play. And Weasler is spying on the playwright on Draymond throughout the fil- throughout the the performance. So he spies him. He sees him down there, and he's got his. His binoculars and he's looking at him and he, something about the about Draymond just doesn't look right he's got that arrogant artist vibe to him and he immediately gets suspicious so he's talking with his boss essentially and they well Weasler says we should watch this guy because uh you know my, he, my spidey sense is tingling and I think there's I think this guy might be might have some skeletons in the closet the minister also seems to share these sentiments, and they launch an investigation, um, basically just to watch him to see what happens. So they bug his apartment, and for the for the you know majority of the movie, it is the operation of Weasler camped out in the attic of the apartment building. The entire apartment is bugged, and just you know listening in on his entire life, and. All his conversations, all his intimate interactions um, being recorded and noted, well, not necessarily recorded, but noted in official reports, looking for something um, against Draymond. And they have a tough time of it. They can't find anything, but they keep it They keep it up because um, Draymond's girlfriend, Krista Maria, is also the love interest of the Minister of Culture, uh, Minister... Bruno Hempf, and Hempf is a a real uh, a real class act. We'll get into his character later. Um, so the the basic premise is that Hempf is has initiated this investigation to basically remove Draymond from the picture so that he can get uh, this actress uh, to be his, and he uses some um, he uses all the all the perks of his position and his power and authority to do so. Eventually, Draymond, uh, one of Draymond's friends, commits suicide. And that is kind of a a shock for him. And a a few events kind of conspire to, to, how would you put it? Inspire him to make a, take a stand on something. So he writes this, essentially a eulogy for his, his friend, where he talks about suicide in the GDR and how in 1977, I don't know how accurate this is, um, but in 1977, the GDR stopped recording suicides because I think, um, I think the statistics were that only, only Hungary in among the European nations had a higher suicide rate in 1976. So in 77, they stopped recording suicides because you can't, it's bad PR because everything has to be perfect. And, he writes this piece and gets together with his friends and essentially has to 
write it in secret. He has to use a different typewriter, and he can't let his girlfriend know. He can't let Krista Maria know. And so he writes this piece to be smuggled um, into West Germany, West Berlin, and published there. Now, along the way, the agent who is in charge of the, or leading the investigation against him, the, the surveillance effort, Wiesler, he, it, well, first he starts out and he is um, kind of, he's presented as a, a typical, um, you know, Stasi guy, kind of completely heartless. And uh, the, the first scene is great. The first scene of the, of the film is an interrogation with a young man being brought in. And I've got some of the dialogue here because this really, I, I thought this was great. And these are some of the first words of the film. So he sits down, they sit him in the chair. And Weasler asks him, um, what do you have to tell us? And the young man says, I've done nothing. I know nothing. Weasler, you've done nothing. Know nothing. You think we imprison people on a whim? And the guy says, nine? No. And then Weasler comes back with, if you think our humanistic, sy- if you think our humanistic system capable of such a thing, that alone would justify your arrest. And the, the guy just goes, and then the interrogation proceeds for hours and hours, and it turns out this is a rec- uh, there's an audio recording, and this is Weasler teaching the the new recruits for the Stasi on proper interrogation tactics, techniques, and another great scene just right in the, in the beginning. One of the one of the students says, "Well, because uh, he part it, it jumps to like hours later when the guy hasn't slept for." hours and he's just like he's he's falling asleep and they're keeping him awake and one of the students says well isn't it why do you keep him awake for so long isn't that inhuman and weasler looks at him you know comes forward um puts a little x next to his name on the on the chart of where the students are sitting and then answers him basically saying um no it's not inhuman because um when you keep someone awake um essentially that will the, how they react to being kept awake will be a sign of their guilt. You know, if they start crying, um, you know, an innocent person will rail against them for, for the injustice of being, um, being interrogated and having lies told about them. But an innocent, uh, a guilty person will, will crack, basically, and start crying. And in this case, the, the guy does crack and admits that he knows who helped someone escape into West Berlin. That's kind of the setup for Weezer's character. But through... A number of events that happened through this interrogation. Um, Weasler's listening to all this guy's conversations, how he interacts with his friends, how he has, how he celebrates his birthday party. And when Draymond's friend commits suicide, um, who was a director who had been blacklisted like 10 years ago, hadn't been able to work, he finally commits suicide. And for his birthday, he had gifted Draymond with the, the sheet music for a piano sonata called Sonata for a Good Man. This was actually composed for the film, so there's no composer um, listed on the, on the music in the film. And so when he hears about the suicide of his friend, he plays the piece. And his girlfriend, Krista Maria, is in the room with him. And after he's finished, he says something like, uh, well, he says two things. One paraphrased, I can't, underst- I can't understand how anyone who hears this, who truly hears this music, can be a bad person. And he says that, um, that he'd heard that, and this was a, a quote from, or a paraphrase of something that Gorky wrote, 
about a, uh, a conversation he had with Lennon. Lennon had told him that he, he couldn't listen to his favorite piece of music anymore. He couldn't li listen to Beethoven's Appassionata because when he did, he felt the impulse to just like essentially hug and kiss people and pat their heads. And what the revolution really needed was to bust heads and to uh, destroy people. And so this was actually the inspiration for making the movie. Um, what's his name again? Von, Von Hammerstruck? No. Von Donnersmark. Von Donnersmark had read this and thought, well, what if, um, what if, what if Lennon had heard, or, you know, what was it, Adam? What if Lennon had heard this music? What if we could play this music for Lennon? Right? Yeah, what if he could play this music for Lennon mm -hmm. to have him actually, you know, feel the music and change and, and have a different course of history, essentially. Right. So this is what happens with Weasler. Weasler hears this, and in that scene, you know, he's got the single tear going down his cheek. And it's a, it's very moving. It's a, you know, it's a, within the, the confines of the film, I found it to be a, a realistic and moving, like, development or transition for Weasler's character. As he's exposed to, to actually listening to, to this Draymond guy, getting to know him, and then um, having this, this tragedy in Draymond's life, the music, hearing that quote, and... Uh, like I said, a bunch of other things kind of conspire on Weasler to actually make him sympathetic to Draymond, the, the subject of his surveillance. And Weasler ends up basically writing fictional reports, which is another interesting thing. Draymond's a, a fiction writer. He writes plays, and Weasler ends up composing these fake reports to cover over for the the the, the treason that... Draymond ends up committing, which is writing this eulogy about suicide. And so some tragic things happen. Um, it, before we talk about the end, is there any that, were there any other events that you guys think I'm missing? Well, or should get to just one crucial point is that uh, Weasler, who's investigating Draymond, mm -hmm. uh, is also aware of the fact. That the Minister of Culture, ah, yes. um, Bruno Hempf, who is conspiring against Draymond mm -hmm. to put him out of the picture, and so this this brutally efficient Stasi <laughs> agent has, you know, this is the opening for him to. Uh, it appeals to his sense of right and wrong on a mm -hmm. whole new level, and this this is in part why he has a. Uh, he he knows that the 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 deck is effectively stacked against Draymond because there's this very powerful um, you know committee member who is looking to find anything mm -hmm. uh, against Draymond. So you have that in the in the backdrop um, that that's kind of motivating in part uh, what uh, Weasler is is doing, mm -hmm. and also uh, Grubitz. Uh, the the head of the you know department the the Stasi department where they're all at, um, he's looking at this as a political game. You know he understands that you know him is you know looking to to get this other guy out of the way so he can have his woman, um, and Grubitz sees it as an opportunity from two angles. Number one, he can help Hemp get gets what he wants, and so, and thereby you know have a very powerful friend. But at the same time, too, well, now he's got some blackmail mm -hmm. 
some dirt on him so he can possibly use that for later. Mm -hmm. And so this is another thing that uh, Beesler is aware of and one of the things that appeals to his inner humanity after uh, he hears the uh, sonata for a good man. Because um, before, you know, like you said, he was very, very tightly wound mm -hmm. and, you know, very, you know, by the book, you, you see his very rigid. Yes. His apartment is just, you know, perfectly organized. Everything's in its perfect little spot in its perfect place. And there's very little decor and it's very minimalistic. Um, and, and so he's very, he's very much a party man. And then, you know, he hears the music and he starts to, to change a bit. And then, you know, when all of this other stuff starts to develop and, and, and get more and more complicated, you know, he, he runs up against, you know, choices. So it starts with him writing these fake reports and then he starts to get more involved. Um, at one point he even has, uh, well, he, he sees, um, Chris and Maria coming home, uh, from being out and doing things with him. And so Wiesler rings the doorbell in order to get uh, Draymond to go outside and see. So he sees, so Draymond sees that Chris Maria is not where she said she was um, and basically causes him to confront her about it. Um, and then, you know, there's other uh, instances like that where he gets more involved. Um, at one point, they have a a fight because he actually does, Draymond eventually does confront Krista Maria and says, don't go to him. You don't need him. You don't need him as a political backer to you know get you work, essentially, because you're a good actress and, and you don't need him. Um, and, of course, because uh, Wiesler is there listening the whole time he feels it. And so she leaves and he leaves because his relief comes. So he's, um, he's relieved of duty. So he goes out for, a, to watch to see what happens. And then there's this drunk guy sitting outside. He's like, Oh, what are you looking at? And so V is like, okay, well I can't sit here anymore. So he goes into the bar and then Chris Maria comes in and he has this kind of, crisis moment where it's like you know what does he do does he just leave does he does he say something to her uh, and then he gets up and he decides to go and talk to her and you know he he gets involved by saying you know you don't he basically says you know what she needs to hear uh in order to have the the courage and um confidence in order to stand up for herself and not go to uh, to Drempf or not to Hemp and um, and basically you know hook up with him Drumpf. and <laughs> Drumpf. Um in order to yeah further her career. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's another thing where he you know he he not only like hears the music and then gets involved emotionally, he gets involved in a very real way uh, by. It, engaging with them without revealing who he is and what he's doing. Mm -hmm. So the investigation proceeds and Weasler's 
reports are basically saying, oh, there's nothing to see here. You know, he 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 argues to scale down the the investigation so they don't have to be on shifts. You know, he'll be the only he'll he'll be the only one taking care of it because he can't trust the other guy. And so that's happening. But then the the Stasi finds out from another source that Krista Maria is getting illegal medication through um, some doctor. Well, that that was from uh, that was from Hemp because that was from Hemp, yeah, because yeah, right. okay, so she she gets the courage, right? She gets emboldened yeah, yeah. to 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 leave and not go back to Hemp uh, for anything, and so Hemp they have him in one scene where he's sitting on a, on the bed in a in a hotel room and he's just like stewing stewing and you know brooding uh and then yeah you know a short time later he's like he comes he talks to grubitz the sazdi guy and is like she's getting illegal medication this is where she's getting it pick her up mm-hmm. ruin basically ruin her career <clears throat> yeah you know, I, i'm the jilted yeah. uh party here mm-hmm. i don't yeah. want to see her on the german streets again yes i i am that powerful you do this or, you know, or else. And, and that's also a, a very um, kind of insightful uh, dimension to this whole story. It's that people's lives were destroyed at the whims of not even political ideology, just, just pure, unadulterated power games. And uh, it, it's very unlike the character... Um, Weisler, who is this brutally efficient technocrat who believes in the system, and he's got this, he's not only growing this impoverished impoverished inner life by identifying with Dryman and Krista Maria, who he's spying on, but he's also getting insight into how the, the, the real levers of power are being played out uh, in observing the maneuvers of Hempf. So um, there, there is that dimension to it as well. And, uh, you know, there's one scene where um, Weasler is at his apartment soliciting the, uh, the services of a, a prostitute who is well known among, you know, the Stasi, uh, you know, residents of that apartment building. And she's like, yeah, sure, I come here all the time. There are lots of you guys here. And it's a very cold, um, uh, just, just a mechanical just uh, interaction, just business, just business between the two. And it's a, it's such a stark contrast between the lovemaking that we see between, uh, the, the protagonists, uh, Krista Maria and, uh, and Draymond. And, and it's actually, that, I'm pretty sure that scene can't, comes after the first time. So he's he's listening in on them, and he he's listening in on them making love, you know, for the first time that he's there. Mm-hmm. So he and so he writes in the, in his report, you know, subjects appear to be to then make to have intercourse or something, and and so then that cuts to him that night. So it's like that prompted that that in in a sense that prompted him to that sexual encounter, like he almost like a yearning he wanted some some of that feeling in his life that was totally lacking at, you know as this solitary um loner just working for the system and that's that's how he tried to find it and it was like a a, a very like pathetic 
like um, a pathetic attempt at establishing a, a human connection with someone, mm-hmm. and like you could tell that he that he wanted more, and basically that's the only way that he he thought that he could try to find it, and it was a, a total failure. Mm-hmm. Did you have anything else to say? Uh, no, 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 no. I thought I interrupted you. Yeah. No. So, one of the things he eventually ends up. Well, so Krista Maria, we left off, it has been taken in, and she she gives up Draymond as the author of this report that was published in Der Spiegel. And so they send the Stasi to uh, to ransack the place and look for any evidence. They don't find anything because he's hiding the typewriter underneath some boards. In the um, between two of the rooms, they don't find it. Now, Grubitz—that's his name, right? Yeah, the boss. He's suspicious of Weasler at this point, and because here's Krista Maria saying that it was him the whole time. So, what has Weasler been doing? How, how has he not noticed this? And so he gives Weasler one last chance, one last opportunity to redeem himself and make this right by interrogating Krista Maria. So he's sitting in the room, and uh, she comes in. He's not facing her. He turns around, and that's when she sees him. She recognizes him. This was the guy that gave her those um, that those words in the bar that uh, that gave her that you know that courage and confidence. And uh, so there's that kind of this kind of strange connection between them. He gets it out of her that the the typewriters underneath the boards. Uh, great scene, by the way. Um, but and then he rushes off. And uh, Grubitz asks for him, wants to talk to him. He's like, oh, he, he, you know, he already left. And we find out he's been to Draymond's apartment. And Draymond gets there. Uh, Krista Maria gets there. <clears throat> A little confrontation like, you know, where have you been? And then the Stasi get there and uh, with Grubitz. And they're like, well, we just wanted to check again, make sure we didn't miss anything. And then Grubitz, you know, looks down. Oh, those floorboards don't look very kosher. Um, and pries them open, and there's no typewriter. And at this point, as they're searching, as they find the, flo- the floorboards, Krista Maria, Maria runs out because she knows what's underneath that floorboard. She runs out into the street deliberately, and this truck comes by and you know runs into her. Um, it's basically suicide. And uh, Weasler, who's watching on the street, you know, he's like things aren't going the way he thought they they would go or the way he would have wanted them to go. And he talks to her and she basically says that, you know, um, it was just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to live with myself because I, you know, I'm, I'm responsible for this. I turned him in. I, I ratted on him and he's trying to tell her, no, you know, I'd already, I already took it. I, I, I taken care of it. Don't, you know, but she dies and Draymond gets demoted to the department M, um, opening. Well, not Draymond Wiesler. Wiesler, yeah, sorry. He gets demoted to the mail department. And then that's pretty much the end of the drama. And it skips forward. The wall falls. And then years after that, Draymond writes an, a book, a novel. Um, I think the novel is called uh, Sonata for a, young, for a Good mm-hmm. Man. And the archives have opened up, so... Um, so Draymond looks through his file. Oh, but because, well, before that, yeah, he, there's the, a performance of another of his plays that he's at, and he has an encounter outside with Hempf. 
it's the same play that they had started the off okay. uh, at the beginning of the movie with where Hemp was there and mm -hmm. and uh, everybody else was there. So it's just coming back full circle to where yep. he sees it again. He's reminded of yep. uh, Krista Maria and then has to go outside mm -hmm. because he just, you know, it's it's yep. too much for him. So he sees Hemp outside and they have a conversation and uh, he asks Hempful, why weren't you guys watching me? Why didn't you have surveillance on me? And Hemp kind of just like chortles, you know, no, chortle isn't the right word. He, he, well, he laughs a bit and just says, we were watching you all the time. We knew everything about you. We had the, you were under full surveillance. And uh, Draymond's like, that doesn't make any sense because I'm, I'm still here. <laughs> and and um, so he goes to the archives and gets his file and that's where he's able to read through all these reports and he's reading through and then he sees these reports on on how Draymond was writing this new play with his friends he wasn't writing a new play you know he was writing his his uh, thing on suicide and there's even descriptions of the the play that he's writing about Lenin and what Lenin's doing and the and the, and the troubles so the, so uh Weasler was actually writing the outlines of this play on his own which I thought was really funny and um so we find so he f finds out who's this guy like um hgw xx dash you know slash seven who is who is this guy and he finds out who he is um kind of like spies on him another interesting reversal he you know he's following him in his in a, in a taxi and sees that he's basically delivering junk mail now and hesitates and then doesn't confront him but then writes this book and then the last scene is weasler delivering mail and he's walking by the bookstore and he sees the, the advertisement, the poster for Draymond's new book. So he walks in and he looks at a copy and he goes to the, to the dedication. And it's to HGWXX slash seven. Um, how does he put it? Just like... Um, ingratitude. Ingratitude, or? yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the, the final scene is Weasler buying the book. And that's how the film ends. So... Before, before we kind of give our additional thoughts on the, the film itself and the, kind of our analysis of it, I wanted to bring up an article that came out soon after the movie was released because there were some that actually refused to see it in East Germany because of the way they portrayed Weasler, because um, they essentially humanized one of the, one of the Stasi yeah, one of the Stasi. And there's an article that I found from May 2007 by Anna Funder, um, an Australian writer who wrote this book, um, Stasiland, Stories from Behind the Berlin Wall. And I just want to read a couple things from this article um, because she talks about this. She basically, she describes the film, well, I'll just read a couple paragraphs. Despite the discomfort of friends of mine who suffered under the regime, some of whom are refusing to see Florian Henkel von Donner's marks The Lives of Others, I think the, I think the film deserves its public and critical acclaim. It is, it, is a super, it is a superb film, a thing of beauty, but its story is a fantasy narrative that could not have taken place and never did under the GDR dictatorship. As she writes... No Stasi man ever tried to save his victims because it was impossible. We'd know if one had because the files are so comprehensive. Unlike Weasler, who runs a nearly solo surveillance operation and can withhold the results from his superior, 
Totalitarian systems rely on thoroughgoing internal surveillance, terror, and division of tasks. The film doesn't accurately portray the way totalitarian systems work because it needs to leave room for its hero to act humanely, something such systems are designed to prevent. Skipping a bit, she talks. She she mentions how the first shot with the the first yeah the first scene in the film with the interrogation at the Hohenschönhausen prison wasn't actually filmed in that prison because um, it is now a museum or and it was at the time and the director Dr. Hubertus Knabe um, the he basically refused permission because of the storyline. And as he put it, um, when von Donnersmark told him, you know, about the story and that, um, used Schindler's list, used Schindler's list as an, as an example of the kind of film he wanted to make. Nabe's response was there was a Schindler. Uh, there was no Weasler. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'd like to yeah comment on, comment that. on that for a second, because, um, yeah, I think it's it's quite probably literally true to say that under that sort of a system, no Stasi agent could ever have had the freedom and agency to or conscience or, or conscience to to help individuals in in the manner that uh, Weasler is portrayed as doing. By the same token, you know th- this is a this is a film about the the the. On another level, I think it's a film about the soul of the GDR. Um, and so Weasler is, in a way, a stand-in and symbolic of a, a system at its core that, uh, that could change and did change um, with the influence of Gorbachev and, and Perestroika and, and the, the will of the East Germans who had for months prior to the uh, the destruction of the Berlin Wall had had become emboldened to to you know make efforts towards bridging uh, their their nation with the west and having freedom so i i kind of see weisler as a as symbolic yeah. you know he's he's had a, a taste of of freedom uh he's he's begun to assimilate what it means to be a human being and uh you know where where a lot of that was was beaten out of uh the lives of the east germans under under communist rule and so he's he's kind of a stand-in and you, you can understand the the you know for those who have suffered especially uh who understood it uh, you can understand their resistance to having such a, a a character portrayed in the way that he his is, but um, I think it's kind of missing the point a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would just say that you know this film also reminded me quite a bit of our discussion with Rod Dreher um, and and the the coming soft totalitarianism and his look at you know lives. In Eastern Europe, that were you know in the uh, in the influence of of the the Soviets and communism uh, for so many years, Hungary, Romania, 
uh, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, among others. And um, I thought the film did a, a pretty good job of of conveying the the emotional environment, the way that individuals who were the dissidents at the time, the intellectuals, the literati, uh, had to communicate with one another, and you know had to hold themselves back and hold each other back from making statements that can get themselves into very deep trouble. Um, and yet, so so I thought that that tension and that struggle was uh, was very well um, shown uh, for what it is. Um, and for those of you who, who haven't yet watched that show or, or read Rod Dreher's book, uh, highly recommend it um, as a kind of adjunct to, to this movie in particular. Uh, and other movies I think we'll get into that depict what totalitarianism looks and feels and sounds like and um, is made more real for, for being put into a fictional narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think he, I think the filmmaker did a wonderful job with this movie. I mean, I, th- I like yourself, Harrison, I, I had seen this movie uh, a number of years ago as well and remember liking it very much. Um, but I, I feel like it's even better now that I understand more of of what it's about and uh you know the, the the whole movie is framed in in this question as to whether or not uh individuals can change and the minister of culture hemp says no they, they don't change they can't change and for him projection it, it's true it's a projection exactly uh but for um but for dryman the playwright it is absolutely true, and and he makes it true. He helps he helps it to become true for the the very Stasi agent who's investigating him, Weasler, um, and and for the the entire country. So uh, there was that very interesting perspective as well. And I you know can't recommend it enough. I don't think uh, I don't think I have anything. You know I'm I'm I'm. Gosh, I you know yeah. I can I can be very critical of movies you know for certain things and I didn't I didn't find anything uh, I mean this, from scene to scene to scene everything was so and we watched this with a few folks last night again and one of our friends turned to us and and she was like the pacing of this movie is was just perfect and it is uh, it's like um, it's a little bit like reading a novel in in mm-hmm. in how well. Uh, and how well drawn out it is. I mean, it's it. You know, you get the inner life of the characters. You get some. You get some complex, you know, uh, dynamics going on. But everything is well articulated. Everything is very clear. You get the you get the perspective of every character, um, and none of them feel like stand-ins for for real people. They all they all seem like real people. They all sound like real people. Uh, so this is one to put on your list, folks. That's what I say. Yeah. I don't know if it's Anna Funders, Anna Funders' words or if she was kind of referencing someone else, but, um, but she essentially said that it, it's kind of considered the first film that accurately portrays what the GDR was actually like. 
because um, there were other movies, of course, um, but the the GDR and and even a kind of a, a semi-critical take on it, it had never really been been done seriously. There were a few com- or a couple of comedies that came out, like a Goodbye Lenin. I think that's the name of it, which I thought was great. I, I like that movie, but it's not the same, right? This is kind of this is a more realistic take on it that that doesn't kind of um, well it. Goodbye Lennon is a comedy and it's a feel good movie. Um, well, I'd recommend checking that one out too if you want. Uh, we're not we're not going to talk about it though. But von Donnersmark's response to that kind of the criticism, um, this is what he said. He said, "I didn't want to tell a story as much as explore how someone might have behaved. The film is more of a basic expression of belief in humanity than an account of what actually happened. So it is it is total fiction and it is." It's so, you know, Weasler isn't a real person. There was no Weasler. But like you said, Weasler is, he, he fulfills a purpose, you know, in the, in the film that maybe didn't actually exist, but it's, it's, it's for, it's, it's for art. <laughs> um, but I, I found the role that he played very interesting. Um, this, I want to give a kind of like a ponderological analysis of the, of the movie because, there are some interesting things going on there. I think that just intuitively, um, the the writer director managed to capture a whole lot. Probably just because he 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 knew from his research what things were like, and so he managed to capture bits of you know what the GDR was actually like. And by but he but the elements that he managed to capture, I think, are some of the most important ones, like the character of Hemp. Um, Hemph is just like Hemph is a total psychopath, and he's a good like he's a good psychopath, not in the sense that he's virtuous or anything. But we know what you mean, Harris. <laughs> he's a good he's a good psychopath. He's not overdone, like he's not uh, right. over the top. He's just uh, he's just a scummy, you know, politician. That's that's pretty much all he is, and uh, but very well done, very realistically portrayed. Even and that last even that last scene with with Draymond yeah. was was great because he's just he's totally in character and he's he's not powerful anymore but he's still totally arrogant and um and there nothing can nothing can rattle him nothing can get through to him just cuz that's his personality structure and then you have the guys working in the in in the Stasi who are just kind of part of the system in it for themselves don't really care about what what the you know what they do to the lives of these people mm-hmm. um that they're going after. And then Weasler himself is an interesting character. Like I mentioned, he's a loner. Um, he's dogmatic. He's rigid at black and white thinking. Um, I don't think this was intentional, but I, I could, you could describe him as um, like having schizoid personality disorder. Um, I'll read a bit, one paragraph from Ponerology, where Lobachevsky is describing schizoids as, uh, he said, schizoid characters aim to impose their conceptual world upon other people or social groups using a relatively controlled pathological egotism and the exceptional tenacity derived from their persistent nature. I think that's a perfect description of Weasler. Thus, uh, they are thus eventually able to overpower another individual's personality, which causes the latter's behavior to turn desperately illogical. He's a, a prison interrogator. Um, that's essentially exa- exactly what he does. That's his job. They may also exert a similar influence upon the group of people they have joined. They are psychological loners who begin to feel 
better in some, Hugen, in some human organization, wherein they become zealots for some ideology, religious bigots, materialists, etc. In another part, he mentions that schizoids are torn between two worlds because they, they see the, initially, they see the potential for a totalitarian system and they're the, the original um, supporters of such a system like Karl Marx and um, a lot of the early communists. But they, they're not psychopaths. They, they, they might have muted, um, muted, a muted emotional nature but they still have a like a pull towards you know what Lobachevsky calls the world of normal men, and so they're they're in the middle. They're between two worlds. Um, the unrealistic thing, at least according to like what Lobachevsky might say, is that uh, in a in a system like the GDR at this point in time, the schizoids you know probably would have already have been filtered out of the system you know probably back in the fifties or the late forties, and the and that that jives with what the, the criticism of the film on its on its you know historical realism that by that time there were no men like Weisler in the Stasi. Um, Lobachevsky says that you know, that uh, secret police agents were often psychopaths. So that was like a that was a um, chances are most of them were psychopaths. They weren't necessarily schizoids. You wouldn't find a guy like like Weisler in the system. But it's interesting that they, that he that he chose a character like. Um, I think that was just his artistic choice and, and his knowledge of just human nature that he, he chose a character like Weasler as this stand-in, someone who does fit within the system, does fit within this human organization and finds this camaraderie kind of, this, this sense of purpose within this, this organization, within the Stasi. He's rigid. He's uh, ideological. He's, um, he's serious. Like uh, even Grubitz will... Um, will will joke and uh, joke and bend the rules and like he's not um he is more opportunistic and um well psychopathic in the sense that he's he he's willing to just make use of the system for his own goals and he d- just doesn't really care about the about the the ideology it doesn't matter if if he like how how does he put it at one point um where Weasler says well why are we what was it why are we going after this guy or um it was something about um, about Hempf and oh, I can't like remember. Why were they watching him? Why were they watching him? Or what are we? Why are we doing this for Hempf or something? And Grubitz basically says, "Well, it doesn't really matter, you know. Um, like, uh, if there's something in it for us, then you know, why not? Mm-hmm. Um, something like that. I can't remember the exact scenario, but so that's the function that that individuals, schizoid individuals in a in a pathocracy." Um, have in in real life and in the movie that's portrayed as he is the bridge between these two worlds and he's he's hesitant he's he's more on one side and then slowly gets pulled towards the other side so it's a it's a perfect it's a perfect character choice to play that role within the film someone who can go either way and has been has been on one side but has the potential to move to the other and it's not like Weasler's presented as some um, great guy great um, you know, ideal guy that's just hampered by the system and he, he really has these these high ideals or anything. No, he's a hardcore Stasi guy. And even after his conversion, so to speak, he's still working for the Stasi and he's still reading people's mail and, you know, writing reports to get them sent to prison for, you know, saying 
a bad word about the the local minister of culture or whomever. Like, so he's he's still a pretty rotten guy, but he had that. He, there is that that connection that um, well, th- that redeeming quality that he has, and that he and that he grows within the film. So you. So they've managed to in the film they've managed to capture some kind of um, some of the main characters in a pathocracy and to embody them in individual characters. So you have like hemp, and hemp represents an entire type of person that was you know the people at the top in the the communist system, totally psych totally psychopathic. Then you have um, all of the all the guys like within the Stasi, some just like him, but like opportunists, not narcissists. And then you have the normal people like Draymond. And there is, and then the experience of living within that system where you have all these people who have a, a normal emotional life, but who can't express it because there are all these written and unwritten rules for what you can say, what you can't, when you, what you can say and do and what you can't say and can't do. And it is, it's like the, it is a mental prison. And one of the, one of the, a couple of things stuck out to me. Um, one was a description. This was an interesting scene. I'm pretty sure, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong or if you guys had a different interpretation. At one point, um, Weasler goes into Grubitz's office with a piece of paper and I'm pretty sure on that piece of paper was the incriminating evidence that was going to he was going to turn Draymond in. Mm-hmm. Before he gets the chance to hand over this piece of paper, Grubitz is like, "Oh, check out this you know new report written by you know one of my students, uh, their dissertation. You know, I gave them a B, even though it's great, but I don't like to you know puff up my students too much. Um, they have to work hard for it. And it's this report on like um, on how to what was it." the imprisonment of the artistic personality or, or something like that, where he described where the, this Stasi student describes the different artistic types and, uh, and Grubitz informs Weasler that Draymond is type number four and the, the best type of imprisonment for, uh, a man of such a type is that, Oh, you don't, um, because they have such a high opinion of themselves, you you don't give them any any publicity or any any human interaction. You basically put them in solitary confinement. You don't tell them that um, that they're charged with anything or when they're going to get out. Um, you just put them there and you leave them there, and you don't have any interaction with them. And the their the lack of human contact, which they so crave and need, will just be the psychological torture. And then because you don't actually actively harm them in any way, you just don't do anything to them. Then when they get out, they can't write any bad things about them. But, uh, about what happened because oh what they didn't they didn't torture you what they just left you in the room all the time um and then uh, the the good the great thing about this is that whenever we use this technique on artists um they end up they don't write anything once we release them so you just put them in for 10 min uh, for 10 months and then release them and uh problem solved and uh weasler's just kind of like listening to this being like oh geez um and finally putting a human face to the to the you know, to these artists who are imprisoned in such a way and just rolls up the paper and, you know, walks out. And that's, uh, so there's that scene. And, um, oh, what was the other one? Oh, the, the joke. So now this, this scene was great for several reasons. Grubitz and Weasler go into the canteen to have their lunch and they're, they're heading over and uh, Weasler just starts to sit down in the middle 
And Grubit says, oh, you know, the bosses sit at that, that table over there. And then Weezer says, well, socialism has to start somewhere. You know, in other words, it's like, why are we having, why, do, why, why are the bosses sitting over there? We're supposed to be this socialist country. It demonstrates his own dogmatism and his own, like, naive idealism in this kind of system. Mm-hmm. And so they sit down in the middle. And then this young guy comes, comes down to sit with his friends who are just at the same table over a bit and says, oh, I, heard, I just heard a new one. And he sits down and he says, and he, he starts telling a, a communist joke, which were verboten. And, and then his friends are looking at him and he's like, what, what? And he looks over and, and Grubitz, his boss, is just staring at him. And he's like, oh, no, what were you saying? You know, no, keep saying it. He's like, oh, no, sorry. You know, I was, I was just blah, blah, blah. He's like, no, 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 it's, it's fine. I want to hear the joke. Uh, I've probably I've probably heard it before, you know. I know a ton, ton of them. So the, the guy finishes the joke, which is quite funny. And and then Grubus just says name. He gives his name, you know, department. And the, the kid is just like, you know, a young kid. He's just like mortified. And then Grubus breaks out laughing, you know, essentially, ha ha, gotcha. And then he tells his own communist joke. And that that scene just captures so much of the absurdity of the GDR and of you know communism in general because it was the same all over Eastern Europe and the USSR you could go to prison for saying certain jokes and but the the, the total absurdity of it in in that if Grubitz had chosen that guy's that guy could have become a uh, a prisoner you know could have gone to jail they could have done whatever they wanted to him but he chose to to laugh at the joke because secretly that everyone knows the jokes right is simply used as a as a uh, a method of social control and meanwhile what weasler is ask is watching this and like what's weasler thinking you know because he probably would have thought well no that guy that guy should be punished for that you can't you can't um um you can't say anything bad about it it was a joke about the the leader of the gdr and and then here's grubitz who tells another joke about the the same guy, the leader. And it's like, on the one hand, there's this rigid, this need for rigid conformity and, and not saying anything bad about the, the, the leadership whatsoever. On the other hand, just a total um, lack of respect that's underlying that, that fake respect. It's essentially a culture of lies where, you are, where you're forced to, forced to conform to this culture of lies when no one actually believes it. Not even the people who are enforcing the, the the fiction. No one actually believes any of the lies, except maybe Weasler, um, or guys like Weasler. So, well, I could keep going on and on, but uh, did you guys have anything to say? Uh, I wanted to circle back a bit to the um, the view of the film as one of the story of humanity and hope and the hope that people can change and that things can change. And, you know, you'd already alluded to Alon the, uh, one of the scenes that I was thinking about, which was, you know, very early on where Draymond and him for talking and him, you know, tells him, you know, Oh, you, you think people can change. People can't change. And, um, you know, and Draymond's based, you know, disagrees with him. And he's like, you know, people can change and, you know, we have to hold on to hope essentially. And, um, 
And so taking that along with what um, Von Donnersmark said uh, about, you know, why he wrote the film. Um, I mean, he wrote it as a, as a story of hope, a story of, you know, the hope for change in humanity, which is very much what Draymond, like that was his position. Um, he wasn't a propagandist. You know, he genuinely tried to work within the system to, to help uh, bring, you know, hope to people. And so I see that as as being interesting, uh, where you know the writer and director of the film, the movie was, you know, very much where Draymond was kind of like him and what he hopes to do with his art, mm-hmm. which is exactly what Draymond was trying to do with his art, mm-hmm. which was to call for for uh, you know people to <clears throat> believe in themselves enough to uh, to change and to stand up for. Uh, either themselves or what is true or what is right and what is good. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was really interesting. And, um, with Wiesler or Wiesler as a, uh, how did I put it earlier? Um, he was, you know, in one sense you could see him as a stand in for the GDR. Um, but I saw him, more as the stand-in for Lenin and for humanity in general, and that, you know, by it's the same way that Draymond's hope was for change. It's the same with von Donnersmark's hope for change, in that, you know, they they hope that by putting this stuff out there, that we can grow as people, that we can avoid all of these unnecessary sufferings that that come from believing these lies and supporting these lies and doing these you know horrible things to each other they they have to believe and and hope that there is and can be uh something more because if there's nothing more than you know what's the point well so just thinking on it a little bit it seems to me that we have a a pretty good analogy between the the uh, political pressure uh, and need to acquiesce to the, the powers that be in the GDR. Um, I mean, is is in some, at least some minor way comparable to Hollywood at the moment in the sense that I do think that the, you know, the, the wokeism that we're seeing right now uh does have some amount of um, pressure uh, that that's being uh, put upon the the individuals in in the West in 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 the U.S. in particular, uh, and maybe some of these people feel compelled to to chime in and sound woke, um, and and the Stasi is the the cancel culture woke social media uh you know monsters that are vilifying and attacking and demonizing people who dare to say anything that's questioning wokeism um you know witness what happened with gina carano a couple of months ago and her statements uh so there is this you know 
really, why are we talking about this movie? Why do we continue to 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 discuss left wing authoritarianism and uh, and totalitarianism? It's because we're seeing this phenomena right before our eyes, some version of it that's that's infiltrated Western society and culture and is spreading like wildfire to some great extent. And God forbid you should be a strong voice and and a recognized voice and and speak out against it, especially if you're in politics. Forget about it. Um, you know, they will find a way. They will, you know, there'll be a rumor <laughs> and they will witness this with, with uh, Matt Getz in Florida and this recent uh, story. You know, the, suddenly there's this rumor of something and then, and then you have two major newspapers like the New York Times and the Washington Post that repeat the rumor and, and then it becomes fact and then it becomes calls for his, you know, for his uh, resignation. As a, as a politician, as a representative. And, you know, he has to really fight to get his version of the story, which is that there are complete lies being propagated against the man. He has to really fight in order to resist this perception, this lie that's being created about him. Uh, and, and why are they doing it? Because he dares speak out, dares speak out, uh, um, in favor of of some views in politics, and uh, which is you know against the orthodoxy, uh, against this vehement, um, relentless, aggressive uh, drive uh, under the band of of you know left radical left wing ideology, in some cases. Well, just on that. You know, I don't know the, the truth or falsehood of it, but I think that probably the vast majority of Republicans and Democrats have bigger skeletons in their closets. So <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised one way or the other to, to see that either Republican or Democrat heroes have, um, you know, that any any such statements could be true about any of them. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll wait one way or the other. Um, but because it's all... It's all one. It's all one thing. <laughs> when it comes down to it, the, I mean, Republicans. Well, that's a whole other show. But um, well, I would say in this one ruling establishment. I would say in this particular instance, it it seems to me anyway pretty clear what's going on. Not that you don't have a fair amount of uh, conservatives who are hypocrites and and. Mm-hmm who have some major skeletons in their closet. I'm yeah. not saying that at all. Uh, and he may not even be representative of most of most of them. But in this one instance, it you know, the 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 kind of line of force involved uh is so clear. Um anyway, I don't know how good an, an analogy it is, but it it comes to mind. So I present mm-hmm. it here for well, in this for review. The, to 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 relate that back to the film there was what I think Adam had mentioned about um, Grubitz collecting all this information. It can be used either to make a friend or as compromise, essentially. Mm-hmm. So what you see in politics is that oftentimes when there is a scandal, when there's something to the scandal, all the pretty much all the politicians are involved in similar scandals, and it's just that 
this is the one that we can now use to to sacrifice this one who went against the the grain in some way. It's like one of our own who has fallen off the wagon of following you know following the plan, and then it's like okay we're we're gonna kick you to the curb now um, because we're gonna I mean that's probably what was going on with Epstein you know Epstein had dirt on everyone and it's 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 part of a club that you that you that you join and then that can be that then be held over your head and used to make you conform to a certain line and if you step out of line then they've got the material to ruin your career and you know send you off to the country <laughs> um but to to close off I'll share a few communist jokes. We did a whole show on, uh, on communist jokes, didn't we? Yes. Um, yeah. So here are a few other ones. Um, this one is this one is in reference to Poland because uh, Poland in like the, the late '40s and early '50s was providing a whole bunch of um, like stuff to the USSR, essentially like coal. So here's a joke: Negotiations are going on between Mao and Stalin. The Chinese leader asks the Soviet leader for help. We need a billion dollars, 50 million tons of coal, and a lot of rice. Stalin turns to his advisors. Dollars, okay. Coal, okay. But where will Beirut, the leader of, uh, you know, the communist leader of Poland, get the rice? <laughs> <You know. clears throat> um, another one. What is the difference between painters of the naturalist, impressionist, and the socialist realist schools? So socialist real, socialist realism. I th I think you could probably say that Draymond was a in the film at least was was a, a type of socialist uh, realist, you know, preventing the pre presenting the the life of the workers and uh, trying to work with that. And that. So the answer to the question: the naturalist paints as they see, the impressionists paint as they feel, the socialist realists as they are told. And then a final anecdote. There was a, in the GDR in 1961, there was a, a cabaret troupe and they performed a, a version of Where's the Dog Buried? And this is the description of the, of the scene. Two of the actors start dismantling a wall, brick by brick. What are you doing? Asks a third. We're tearing down the walls of the brick factory. <laughs> the brick factory. They reply. Why exactly are you doing that? There's a shortage of bricks, the others respond. The other responds. Exactly, say the two laborers, continuing with their work. That's why we're dismantling the walls. They need bricks, so they're tearing down the brick factory. And um, another scene has a character, uh, or there's a character in there who, <laughs> who answers every question with a quotation from Walter Ulbricht, the leader of the, GD, of the GDR, just to be absolutely on the safe side. Mm-hmm. And the members of this troop um, were imprisoned for nine months, and uh, many of them in, social, in solitary confinement. So just an idea of, uh, I guess, the jokes on them. But that said, check out The Lives of Others. Um, great film, and yeah, we'll be talking about other films that we like in the future too. So... Take care and enjoy.